So for quite some time, we've been making our way through the, through the Gospel of John and doing the Lord's Supper together. So this morning is, is a continuation of that same study. Uh, last time we were together, we were in John chapter 9. We're going to be in John chapter 10 today, but we need to uh, basically have a, a short refresher course to, to make sure we're all on the same page together. So why don't you flip over to John 9. We'll walk through a little bit of it. We're going to walk through John 10, 1 through 18 today in two movements. We're going to go um, up through verse 10, and then we're going to catch 11 through 18 in the second half. You'll remember John 9, uh, Jesus encounters a man who has been blind from birth. It wasn't a late occurrence in his life. It wasn't something that happened as a result of an industrial accident or something else. This guy had been blind from the very beginning. He never knew what sight was. He never knew what color was. He never knew what the sky looked like. He never uh, took in the colors of his mom and his dad's face. He, he didn't know himself and from his own reflection until Jesus came in. He gave him physical sight, and we also recognize he gave him spiritual sight. That's John chapter 9. But something rather remarkable happens to this man at the end of John chapter 9. You see, Jesus goes in and he enters into this dialogue. He heals this guy. This guy goes to the religious leaders of his day. He presents himself before them, and they've got a real problem with it. They've got a real problem with what has happened to this man. They don't like the way that he has been healed. It's not necessarily they're against blind people getting their sight. They're just against blind people getting their sight at the hands of Jesus because they don't really care for him. They don't really like him. They don't have a place within their system of understanding for Jesus. So this man who is among the sheep of Israel is... is, essentially sharing the gospel with the religious leaders of his day. And look here what happens to his attempts at reaching them, to his attempts at understa- of explaining to them what exactly has transpired for him. Verse 34, chapter 9, says, They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And it tells us that they cast him out. This man was kicked out of his entire community. It wasn't just that they came to the church and said, look, we really need you to to leave. You're disrupting people. You see, to be asked uh, to leave church at that time, to be kicked out of temple worship, was to be completely removed from your society. This was this man's community. Imagine your entire friend group. Imagine every member of your family. Everybody's gathered around. And everything you do in life is centered around one community. And then all of a sudden, you're persona non grata. You're no longer welcome. You're no longer invited. They say, get out. He's got no friends. He's got no family. He's got no community. So he's walking along the streets there, and he bumps into Jesus, and Jesus calls him into deeper revelation, deeper understanding of who he is. He extends the gospel. He says to the man, do you want to believe in me? Do you know who the Son of Man is? And the man comes to believe. Now look at this. The religious leaders of the day, they hear this. They were mildly irked at what had transpired previously, but they come to Jesus And in verse 40, he says, Some of the Pharisees neared him, heard these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? They want to know, does the blindness that you're referring to extend to us as well? And Jesus responded to them in a unique way. He says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But because you say we see, your guilt remains. One of the central problems they had was an issue of pride. 
One of the central issues they had was, was, was pride. They wanted to maintain their position. They didn't want to yield themselves to submit to Jesus and his lordship. And as a result of that, their blindness clung to them. And Jesus did not result in giving them sight. They didn't have spiritual sight. Although they could see physically, they were blind as a bat spiritually. We come into chapter 10. And it's the same group. It's the same conversation that Jesus is having. And in chapter 10, Jesus changes and he tweaks and he comes at it from slightly a different perspective. And he tells them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs into it by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Friends, he is talking about the religious leaders of his day. He's talking about the religious leaders of his day. And so he's describing this in terms of shepherding. He says, look, you've got a sheepfold. If you go in by anything other than the door, you are not the legitimate shepherd. He is pointing at a flaw in the way they lead. He's pointing at a flaw in their understanding of God and who he is and God's call to them. Look at verse 2. He says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Jesus is pitting one against the other. He pits himself, in a very real sense, against the religious leaders of his day. He says, look, this is what you guys do. You're seeking to overcome these walls, and so in your mind, what I want you to do right now is to figure a sheepfold. So imagine this room is where all the sheep are held, and in the back, there's that one door that is open. And so we've got seven, eight-foot walls all around us, and there are briars clinging to the walls. And so all around the walls here, there are briars. And the only way in is through that door right there. And then you see men and women try and come over these other doors, and you recognize, look, this isn't some type of healthy uh, early first-century parkour. These people are doing something that is radically different, wrong, and uh, peculiar. And so Jesus says that when the true shepherd comes, the gatekeeper opens the door, that he allows him to come in. But key in on what he says. How do the sheep know him? How do the sheep know this shepherd? Is it it a peculiar odor that he gives off? Do they walk in and be like, you smell like us, bro. We know you because you smell like a sheep. I think the NIV says something similar to that, but that's not what mine says. Is it that they walked in and he says, oh, he's got the feed. And so he's got the feed bucket. You know, we have horses and cattle, my parents do. And when you walk up and you've got that bucket and the cattle hear it hitting on your leg and the horses hear it, it's. I think that roughly equates to it's, it's dinner time. They've got whatever the equivalent of the rice aroni theme going through their little horsey heads. It's not, it's not that either. They recognize him because they hear his voice. They know his voice. They're they're keenly attuned to listening for and hearing the voice. Now, when Jesus refers to it, he's referring to the voice of God, the word of God. Going forward, and they hear that voice. But look how he calls them. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Now, for most of us, you're not very uh, attuned to this idea of what it is to shepherd sheep. In fact, most of you, when you think along the ideas of, of shepherding a group or, 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 or kind of working with livestock, you have this kind of cattle image uh, melted out in your mind. 
And in fact, that's the predominant image in my mind. My family have cattle, and so my dad and brother have some dogs that are, are not pets. They are uh, hired hands, effectively, that are there to work, and they're not so kind. They're not so kind. In fact, my, dog, my uh, dad went and, and purchased a new dog recently, and he brought it to my brother's house, and he took the dog out. And I mean, she's a tiny little thing. She's like two poinsettias long and, and about this tall. And my brother's got this rather large Weimaraner, just kind of big, oafy dog. And so my dad set this tiny dog out, and, and, and my brother's dog came out and was doing what dogs do, sniffing it. And you know what that little dog did? It jumped up and bit my brother's dog by the nose and just started swinging. It is not a friendly dog. Like, this is not a lap dog. This thing is vicious. And so when you take it out and you take that dog and, and they can drive cattle just on feet, just using these two dogs and, and shouting out voice commands, and these dogs will swing on noses, swing on tails. They're going to eat up some cattle. They're violent when they're doing it. But this idea of shepherding that Jesus is describing here isn't some violent process where the shepherd comes in the middle of the sheepfold and he's kicking sheep and slapping sheep and whipping sheep and driving them with the dogs. In fact, he is calling them out by the gentle process of his voice and he calls them by name. Now, this is decidedly important for us today. You see, it's not that, that he enters into this naming process much like you and I do when we have pets. And so growing up, we had, we had Jenny, we had Bob, we had Hannibal. I was big into the A-team for a little while. We had uh, a variety of pets, and we gave them just peculiar names. We lived in Scotland. We had a lab. We called him Hamish. We should have called him Stupid. Because <laughs> that's all he really was. We had to get rid of him. I'm sure the family that got him loved him. We called him Hamish. So we gave names that that sounded good to us. But when he's referring to there, shepherds would frequently go in and they would name their sheep according to characteristics that they manifest. And so long ears, bushy tail. he He would look at them and describe these physical characteristics. But when we take this and we apply it to ourselves, recognize that he is describing characteristics that are intrinsic to them. Not ones that are just merely ascribed to them, but ones that are at the base of their very being. So friends, for you and I today, when the God of the universe comes and he calls you, and he calls you into salvation, he doesn't merely look at you and say, Bill, come. Glenn, come. Cody, come. Patrick, come. Lydia, come. Jim, come. Carol, be, come. Because that would be impressive, would it not? That the God of the universe would step into your life, that he would look at you and say, Michael, come. Ellen, come. Kelsey, come. Doug, come. Ron, come. Dee, come. That in itself is an impressive feat. But he does something so much more, so much more penetrating. So he looks into who you are, not merely the name given to you, but he looks in at your deepest hurt, your deepest longing, the things you hope for, the things you're terrified of. And it's those things, that's the way that he knows you. He knows you at the point of your deepest need. And on the basis of these things, he says, come. He looks at those of you who are struggling with knowing who you are, struggling with with knowing how to lead a family, how to follow well, how to make it work. And in the midst of these things, he says, friend, you who are trying to do this on your own, you who are struggling, you who have all these hangups, you who have all of these pains and this anguish, you come to me. Follow my voice. 
Hear my voice when I call. You who are struggling with all of these health issues, you who are struggling with all of these financial issues, you whose family is on the rocks and everything is falling apart. For some of you, you who are in the midst of tremendous joy, come. That's how he knows you. That's the level that he knows you. That's the depth to which he is able to call you. So there's no mistaking. There's no mistaking that he, he's calling you by accident. It's not that you have some very familiar name. I remember being in, in class growing up and being in college and somebody would say Matt and 15 of us would stand up. It was the most common name for like 10 years. And so I step into a room and there were three of us named Matt so we all had to get nicknames on the first day. And like one of us got to be Matt. And so it was Matt, it was last name, it was guy who doesn't do well in class. But God knows you intimately. Now look here. He calls them by name. He leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. This shepherd isn't driving the sheep, but he is walking before them. He's encountering danger before them. He is eyeing great pasture for them. He's eyeing pure water for them. He is tending and caring for the sheep. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now look here, verse 5. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus is describing sheep so intimately attuned with the word of God, so intimately attuned with, with hearing God and his direction, his provision for their life, that when others come in and they seek to exert authority and control on them, they recognize that it's holy, spurious, and different. That it holds no sway for them. That it has no claim to them in their obedience. They follow the true shepherd's voice. And the other voice they flee from, they run away from. Now look here in verse 6. Verse 6 says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus goes, and let's say these guys are the religious leaders of the day, and he's pouring out these things. He's saying, do you hear this? This is the voice. This is the sheepfold. This is the thief. The shepherd comes in through the opening, and they're just like, you guys know what he's saying? I don't know. Something about like sheep and sheepfold. We're like downtown Jerusalem. What's he talking about? We're not on the boonies. We're not on the outskirts. You guys know what he's talking about? No, I don't know what he's talking about. Jesus perceived, he recognized, John records for us. They didn't know what he was saying. So Jesus says to them again, truly, truly, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. Back there, in the back of the sanctuary, that is the only opening. Jesus is that opening. He is the only legitimate way to make it into the sheepfold. He says, I am the door of the sheep. Now look at this. He says, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now what's he talking about? What's Jesus on about? Is he saying that we shouldn't pay any attention to Moses and all those people that came before him? No, Jesus is making a direct reference to all those who presumed to be the Messiah but failed. Jesus is making a reference to all those imposters and posers that came in and said, you should follow me. You should follow me. I'm going to bring about redemption. I'm going to bring about freedom. I'm going to bring about a new era. I'm going to drive off the Romans and reestablish Israel. Jesus is talking about them. Now flip over to Acts 5. You see the, a short window of this. Acts 5, the apostles are taken in. They've been held in prison. They've been beaten a little bit. They've been sent out and told not to do that again. 
And so they've been gathered back up. And the Pharisees are some kind of frustrated. Some kind of frustrated. And they weren't sure what they were going to do to them. They wanted to, to beat them again. But look in verse 33. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. He wanted to have a little powwow. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. He said, look. This guy, Thutis, he rose up. He told everybody he was the Messiah, that they needed to follow him. You remember what happened. A few hundred people jumped on his bandwagon, and they quickly died. He says, look, after that, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan is the undertaking of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Jesus' point. All who came before him, all who sought to exert control and authority as he rightly was able to do, were thieves and robbers. And the true sheep did not follow them. It says, the thief has no claim to the sheep effectively. He says, look, look here in verse 8. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Does this not sound a whole lot like John 14, 6? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is pointing at his exclusivity. Jesus is pointing at his unique position as the Son of God, as God himself, and says, look, they can come in, but they can only come in by me. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, verse 10, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they have life and have it abundantly. This is what Jesus is saying. When they would put the sheep into the fold at night, They had the sheep in there. It would either be a hired hand or someone else would lay at the opening at the mouth of the sheepfold. The point Jesus is making literally is that he lays down. He puts his body between the sheep and everything outside the sheepfold. He blocks the opening. He blocks the opening. So in the night when the sheep are are held safely in the sheepfold, he is keeping them out. If the sheep want to make it out, they've got to cross over him. If a wolf wants to make it in, it's got to cross over him. Jesus is keeping them safe. Jesus is leading them out in victory. Amen? Jesus is the gate to the sheepfold. And he says, look, the thief comes to do you harm. The thief comes, he seeks to exert control and authority over you, but he seeks to do you harm. I seek to give you life. You see, that's what we recognize in the Lord's Supper. We recognize that we have availed ourselves to the life that Jesus extends to us. Amen? Jesus comes and he is the gate. He is keeping us safe. He is leading us out into green pasture. 
verse tells us that he gives life and life abundantly. Jesus gives to us life here and now and life eternal. People take this verse and they go nuts with it. They say he came to give us life and life abundantly and then they define abundantly in all the things that our world thinks are good, great, and wonderful. Can I tell you that when he says he came to give life and life abundantly, he's pointing at eternal life with the Father in heaven and all the riches and all the amazing parking spots in the world and all the blessings and favor that you could ever imagine on this temporal sphere. It's like playing in a dirty mud puddle compared to the riches and the glory spent in eternity with heaven, in heaven with God. Amen? When we gather to take the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming his death. We're remembering it until he comes again. Jesus, the great savior of the sheep, laid down across the opening and so sealed us for salvation. Jesus is the great gate of the sheepfold, laid down. And then he stood up and, and led us out of the sheepfold into the green pastures of, of salvation. As we prepare to take the first of the two elements, we recognize that Jesus' body was broken. And so as we prepare what I want your hearts to meditate on in these next moments is the extent of love that God has for you in serving and in sending Jesus, his son, to serve as the gate to the sheepfold. As we pass this out, I'm going to ask that you take and hold until we all have, and then we will take it together. As we pick back up in John 10, I want you to recognize that Jesus changes the metaphor that he's using here. And so there's a little bit of a background I want to establish. If you're a quick turner, you can flip over to Ezekiel 34. For everybody else, you can just, just follow along. In Ezekiel 34, uh, God writes through the prophet, and he is blasting, effectively, the religious leaders again of, of that day. And he's telling him, he's like, you aren't caring for the sheep. You're well-fed, you're well-clothed, but you don't care anything for the provision of Israel. And so he puts forth this amazing prophecy by the mouth of Ezekiel that things are going to be radically different. Now, in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 15, we, we catch on and we lay a groundwork that will radically change the way we understand John 10. Verse 11, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. He says, look, when things get rough, I'm still going to go find my sheep. Verse 13, he says, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. He's going to give them the choicest provision of places to graze. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. The role of the priests was the care and provision of the people. 
The role of the priests, of the religious leaders, was the care and provision of the people. And what God declares there in Ezekiel is that there is coming a point and a time when he himself will be the shepherd. We look at John 10, 11, and every hair on every appendage stands on end. As we read in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Everything God described in Ezekiel 34 finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Everything God describes in Ezekiel 34, Jesus boldly stands and he stomps his foot and declares in such a direct manner. And he says, I am the culmination, the the perfection of all of these things. I am the good shepherd. He's the perfection of what it is to care for others. He's the perfection of what it is to be the one who is giving and extending care to all those who would hear his voice and follow his commands. He says, I am the good shepherd. But he goes one further than that. He doesn't just leave it there and say, look, I'm the good shepherd. You should take that on what it is. He doesn't just say, look, I'm the good shepherd. Believe me. Just take me at my word. He gives us the qualifications for what it is to be good. He says, I'm the good shepherd. This is how you might know it. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus describes to them, he says, this is how you're going to know I'm good. Because I'm going to die for you. This is how you're going to know that I am good. I am going to surrender my life for you. Jesus says that if you want to know whether or not a shepherd is good, one is good measured upon his willingness to die for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd because I'm going to lay down my life for you. This Jesus knows you by name. He knows everything about you. He knows your innermost want, need, desire, hope, and despair. And he calls you come. This Jesus who calls you come makes provision for you by laying down his life for you. He says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 12, he says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Jesus is is pointing at the marked difference between himself and the religious leaders of his day. So imagine, again, that these four gentlemen on the front of the four religious leaders of his day, and he's speaking to them, and I'm going to apologize to you guys later, but he's speaking to them. He says, I'm the good shepherd, I'm going to lay down my life, but these guys, imagine they are the hired hands. Then when the wolves of life come, these guys say, sheep, what sheep? And they leave. In essence, they, they stand back and say, there are lots of them, have your fill. And when you're done eating, I'm going to come back. Jesus says, look, this is the difference between the good shepherd and the hired hand. The hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. He's only in it for the money. He's only in it because it is a job. But Jesus casts a whole different look at this. He says, look, these religious leaders, they care for you because that's their job. I care for you because I love you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. He's pitting them against himself, this description of of who he is. So as the wolf comes, as things get difficult, this man leaves. Verse 13 says, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
He only cares about them in so much as it doesn't cost him anything. Jesus is willing to surrender everything. Do you see the difference there? The hired hand whose, whose only job was to keep them safe. When it actually took the execution of his job, decided that it, the cost was too high. Jesus, doing his duty, following in obedience to the Father, willingly surrenders his life for the sheep. Verse 14, he comes back to this refrain. Verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. He's giving us this indication that it's decidedly important that we recognize him. You recognize Jesus. I recognize Jesus as the good shepherd, one who's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. So he says it again. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus is driving at this intimate relationship that he is able to have with you and I that we are able to have with him. He says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. I know who the president of this country is. If he were to walk in the back, I could call him by name. He has no idea who I am. Praise God. Jesus says, I know them and they know me. He's pointing at the intimacy of that relationship. Now, I gotta be honest. This week as I'm reading this and I'm studying this and I'm just, I'm floored that the God of the universe sent his son and that he calls me out by name. He doesn't just look at me and say, hey Matt, hey Beasley, hey Matthew, uh, come on out. He looks at me and he knows the deepest hurt in my life. He knows the deepest desires of my life. And so I'm, I'm reflecting over that this week. I'm thinking about that. What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? And when I came to it, it destroyed me. It, it just, it absolutely left me just laid waste. I'm in my office, I'm reading this, I'm working through the text, and I get to the point where the God of the universe, he knows me by name, he calls me out. And the full ramifications of what that means starts to weigh on me. All the mistakes I've ever made in the past, all the mistakes I'll ever make in the future, he knows all of those things. He knows my hurts, he knows my joys, he knows my struggles with anything and everything. And he still calls me out. And I'm laid waste. And I finally make peace with that. I finally get that and I'm moving through that. And then God has a cosmic sense of humor, okay? He has a cosmic sense of humor. He knows his sheep and his own know me. And then he shows us the degree that he knows us. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. That's the depth that my Jesus knows you. God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit dwell in perfect intimacy and union. They know every detail of one another. From eternity past, they've dwelt in perfect harmony and union. And that is the degree to which he knows you. It blew me away that he knew all this stuff about me. But he moves this, to this description that he knows me to the depth that he knows the Father and the Father knows him. 
and I'm laying on the floor. Do you get this? It's comfortable for us that God knows us, that he loves us, and in Jesus he calls us to salvation, and he has sealed us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's something we can communicate to others. But when you take it on this personalized aspect, that he knows you. Scott, that he knows you. Ralph, that he knows you. Jay, that he knows you. Dee, that he knows you. Joan, that he knows you and all the children that you teach. He calls you out by name. In the depth, the degree to which he knows you, it's the same that he and the Father know each other. We should be a couple of things in this. Very terrified that he knows us that well. And terrifically overjoyed. The great mercy and compassion that this all-knowing God has extended to us. That he knows us so much better than we are able to know ourselves. Yet he still bids us come. He still extends love to us. Do you hear that? Do you get that? He says, I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, he comes back to this. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Knowing us. Knowing that we're not this good, great, wonderful people. The people we look like on Sunday morning, Monday morning, many of us are not. In fact, Sunday morning, before you get here, many of you are not. You wake up Sunday morning and you're like, oh my word, it's Sunday again. Where are the nice clothes? Did you iron those pants, honey? Iron? Your pants haven't seen an iron in two months. Who are you kidding? Looks like I'm wearing jeans again. The God that knows all of these details of you, even in his knowledge of them, still allowed his son to lay down his life for you. Look at here, verse 16 extends directly to us. Jesus, speaking these things to the nation of Israel, turns in verse 16. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He points at national ethnic Israel. He says, look, I've got sheep in this fold. I've got other sheep that are not in this fold. And so I must go to them as well. He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. When we're all gathered together, when the church universal is gathered together, the young church that has the music you hate will be there in heaven with you. The older church that some of you, you hear the piano and the organ and you hate, you cringe, you die inside, they'll be there with you. Our friends who have different interpretations of certain passages, they will be there with us. All those who have faith in Jesus Christ and the atoning work of Calvary will be there with us. The Jewish background believers and for everybody else, what I refer to us as the pagan background believers. To worship anybody other than Jesus is to be a pagan, amen? All of us who worshiped ourselves, our parents, our status of life, we were pagan background believers. And he's going to bring us all into uniformity. We'll be one flock and we'll have one shepherd and his name will be Jesus. Jesus says in verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loved me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from the Father. This is the point Jesus is making. His love to the Father and the Father's love to him displays radical obedience. The obedience of Jesus following the will of the Father and laying down his life for sinful, awful, terrible men and women. For you and me, lost in our selfishness, lost in our complete and utter self-absorption, lost in our will for our dream, lost in our desires. He sent Jesus and Jesus laid his life down and the Father had extended him the power and the privilege to take it back up again. And it is in that taking it back up again that we have hope, that we have promise, and that we have salvation. Because we believe not in just a Jesus who died, but we believe in a Jesus who died and rose again. And it sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. Amen? So as we take this cup, we recognize we are celebrating the joyous death of Jesus and his coming again. As we take this cup, we recognize we are remembering the good shepherd who loved us so much better than we could love ourselves or anybody else could love us. He loves us to the degree that he laid his life down, that he allowed his blood to be spent, and then he took his life up again so that we might have a hope and a future. As we are passing out the cup and as you receive it and wait for all to receive, Reflect on the depth of his love for you. Even in light of all those things you know about yourself and your selfishness and recognize that God knows infinitely more than you would hope to know about yourself. Reflect on that and the goodness of God in that. Let us turn our hearts towards the meditation of the word.